0: Malachi 3, 7 through 12. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts.
1: We want to welcome you this morning and also let you know what's coming up. We have worked so hard to plan a special Christmas week. Because Christmas is everything in the Christian church. It's our hope. Easter. it's not Christmas, Easter. <laughs> How do you mess that up? <laughs> That's like misnaming your wife or something, all right. We're gonna start over. Hey, welcome this morning. <laughs> we wanna begin by telling you we are so ready for a super Easter weekend. Because Easter really is everything. It is our hope, it is our joy, it means everything. And we have been working hard to make it meaningful for you and hopefully for the community. This is an easy ask. We've got a great Palm Sunday coming up on April 2nd. There's gonna be a fun thing with the kids. It's a great time to invite somebody then. And we're gonna have a real Good Friday service. On Good Friday, it's gonna be focused on Good Friday, it taught me how good of a leader Kurt is. When he said, hey Gary, would you t- preach on Good Friday services? I said, sure. And then he says, by the way, there are going to be four services, 12, two, four, and six. I'm not saying my answer would have been different, but it was pretty effective. Get the yes, and then talk about what you just said yes to. But I, you know, I have found in my own life, and I'm so glad it's going to be a real Good Friday service. Easter just means more when we could remember what the cross means and spend some time with that. And then on Easter, you know, Kurt will bring it. Invite your friends. We've got cards to invite them. Um, We've been talking about the worship. Myron will be here. It'll be Cherry Hills in full force. What matters more than anything though is just the glorious message and the truth, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the hope and the rescue and the redemption that Easter represents. And we just wanna celebrate it with you and hope that you will grab a card on your way out or a number of cards and invite your friends. All right, let's, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the hope and the joy of what we're looking forward to. And I, I just pray now, Lord, you would turn our hearts to your word. Father, this could be a life-changing message in the way we look at it, a particularly important part of life. And we just ask for your blessing and favor in Jesus' name, amen. We are getting near the end of Girl Scout, Girl Scout cookie season. If you're wondering where you go, I have Girl Scout connections. I'm still able to get a few, though you can't get them so much in stores. But just to know where people are coming from, whose favorites are Dosy Dos? That, that, that's your favorite, Dosy Dos. Here you go. Thank you. We're a giving church here, all right? Who, Who's favorite, they're tag alongs. Now see, you raised your hand before I even said it. But Chelsea, you just want a box of cookies. But hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reward your enthusiasm. If you come out here so I don't hit somebody, I'm obviously not on my game today, messing up Christmas and Easter. There we go. Now here's, here's the right answer. I should imagine 80% of hands would go up. Whose favorites are Thin Mints? All right, oh boy. You were right up there, buddy. Stand up. Catch it. Here we go. We got it. I'll do better second service, alright? I'm gonna get on my game by then, you guys are my warm-up. All right. As much fun as a Girl Scout cookie buying and eating is, every couple of years, I'm glad I haven't heard it this year, that really frustrates me, is when you hear that somebody ripped off a Girl Scout selling cookies. I mean, I think, How low do you have to go on the scale of humanity? That you're gonna rip off a Girl Scout, raising money for her troops? Or at Christmas time, when you talk about the Salvation Army, they've got their kettles out there, raising money for the service of the Lord or to give to the poor. And then you hear that somebody runs off with the kettle of money, I think, seriously? You're gonna rip off the poor to buy a fruitcake for Aunt Matilda for Christmas? I mean, she's not even gonna eat it? Is that who you choose to steal from? But as pathetic as it would be to steal from the Girl Scouts or the Salvation Army, I can think of a worst theft. What if we were robbing God Himself? of all the people we could steal from or rip off? What if God is the one we chose to do? Now, why do I think that's the worst theft? Because it is the greatest theft possible because of all that we owe him. Think about what we owe him. The fact that we exist, the fact that I'm here and you're here is true of for only one reason, one being God chose to create us. The reason we live, we owe everything to him because he, chose to create us, and then thank you, Jesus, he made us humans. He could have made us anything. What if he had made us cows? Seriously, would you rather be the steak or eat the steak? Now I know I've just grossed out the vegans, but let me just say this. If you're a vegan human, you don't have to eat the steak. If you're a vegan cow, you have to be the steak, all right? You don't get the choice, so I'm glad I, I get the choice There are over a million and a half species on this planet. Over a million and a half. Would you want to be any other species than a human? Think of some of the things God could have made. He could have made you a blobfish. (laughs) What, What do you say to be polite if you're a blobfish and your best friend gives birth to a blobfish baby? You hold the baby, she looks just like you. I mean, it's kind of an insult, isn't it? Or, or what if you were created in Ai eye in Australia? See, this is life without tranquilizers, all right? That's, that's what this Ai eye lives with. Or a Venezuelan poodle moth. Looks pretty exotic. We didn't even know they existed till 2009. Can't really find many others. You might be very lonely or extinct if you were a Venezuelan poodle moth. But no, God said we, get to be humans and for those of us who are in Christ, we get all the blessings of a relationship with God, the affirmation of the Father, the security that comes from the finished work of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit who will convict us and lead us to repentance and empower us to change. We are blessed above all people, not only to be humans, but to have a relationship with God. And after all of that, we could never repay. Would would we rob God? Is that the way that we would respond? And some people say, what's the big deal about robbing God? He's rich. In fact, he owns everything. I mean, people don't have much compunction ripping off a government with a budget of $7 trillion almost because they did that during COVID and they do it all the time with taxes. Or, it's not a big deal if I'm ripping off a big company or a celebrity. But here's the difference. Even though God is rich, so to speak, here's why it's so different to rob God than anyone else. We don't owe anything to anyone like we owe everything to God. We don't owe anything to anyone, like we owe everything to God, which is why I think this is one of the worst thefts imaginable and why I have been wrestling for weeks. Lord, is it possible, after all that you have given me, that you look at my life and say, Gary, why are you robbing me? That's the situation that's going on in this portion of the book of Malachi. If you're new, we're gonna series through Malachi. We didn't pull this passage out. We've been going through Malachi for several weeks. We'll still be in it. But Malachi 3.8, we hear these words. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me, but, but you ask, how are we robbing you? Now this is the powerful point of this question. They're robbing God and they don't know it. A prophet is calling them out, what do we do? We didn't know that we were doing anything wrong. What does it mean if it's possible to anger someone to keep angering them and not to realize we're doing it? I've seen it in marriage. I think of a couple married just three months. They were getting dressed in a walk-in, big walk-in closet. Wife takes a blouse off a hanger, puts a hanger back where it was, and her husband looks at her with clenched teeth. "No, you're doing that just to bug me. She said, what? Putting that naked hanger back up there like that? And she's like, first, she'd never heard the phrase naked hanger. She didn't have a clue what he was talking about. She said, what what do you mean? And he explained, when you take a piece of clothing off a hanger and you put it in with the other clothes, it's embarrassed, it's a naked hanger. It doesn't wanna be around the other clothes. And so he showed her and sure enough, she'd never noticed this at the corner of his colony, uh, of his closet, here's this little nudist colony of naked hangers, (laughs) all happy because they're naked together and that's the way you're supposed, she didn't know she was ticking him off. It never occurred to her that it was making him angry, but every day, the most important person in her life was angry, and she didn't know it. That's a bad example, because he's kind of being a jerk, and that's not something to get angry about. But it shows how it could be even more horrific that the God to whom we owe everything believes that we are offending him, and we don't realize that we're doing it. Which means, this is the wake up call from Malachi that goes far beyond finances. Just because you think you're okay with God doesn't mean you are. Maybe you're not even sure why you're here. You're not sure where you are in faith or you're watching online and you don't sense great conviction. You don't think God could possibly be angry with you but clearly this makes it Understandable that just because we think we're okay with God doesn't mean we are. Paul talks about how we need God's word to awaken our conscience. First Corinthians four, four. My conscience is clear, Paul says, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. I would add, just because everyone around you is sinning the same way that you are sinning doesn't mean that God is okay with your sinning. A deadened conscience is a real thing. Kate called this last week, repent. And a lot of us, the problem with repent, we don't think we need to repent. We can't imagine there would be anything to repent of. Sometimes we need a wake up call. Sometimes we need a prophet to stand up and say, you feel okay with this, but God, doesn't, what will direct you? And that's what Israel got with Malachi. And he explains how they are robbing God, verses eight through 10, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now let's step back. What is the tithe? It literally means a 10th. It was given to support the work of the Levites. The Levites was a portion of Israel set aside. They were responsible for the physical upkeep of the temple, providing religious instruction and worship. They were the heart of a nation that worshiped God. It was all through the Levites. To not care for the Levites was literally to starve worship. And they were asked to give 10% to support the work of the Levites. Now for a lot of Christians, whenever I hear through this passage, Go through this passage, I hear two questions. We're gonna answer both of these. If you're not in the faith, you might think, why would you even care about this? But a lot of Christians here are asking this, these two questions. One, in the New Testament times, is the tithe still mandatory? We're reading out of Malachi, and does giving to the storehouse mean we're supposed to give all tithes to the local church? We're gonna answer both of these questions, but before we get there, I want us to take a step back to look at a Christian worldview. The Christian worldview is this, giving begins with getting. Giving begins with getting. The only reason a Christian believes he or she can give is because we know we've first gotten, we first received from God because the world is all His. Psalms 1 says the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. He already owns everything. And so when we talk about giving, it's a little bit loose language. We're just returning to God what already belongs to him, which means when we don't, that's why the Bible says we're robbing him. It's more like the picture of an entourage, right? Let's say you're an entourage for a famous celebrity and she's giving you the job to carry her money and you do that. She doesn't wanna have to touch money, but then she decides she wants coffee or something. Hey, can you give me a 20? I wanna buy some coffee. You hand over a 20. You're not really giving the celebrity a 20. You're just allocating to her what is already hers. That's the biblical worldview, if we really believe that it all belongs to God. And this is why it's so important to begin here, because if you don't believe, if you don't remind yourself continually that you get everything from God, you'll neglect to give something back to him. It is so easy to forget that it's all his. And so we act like it's a favor if we give just a tiny little bit back. So let me ask you, do you really believe it's all God's? Do you really believe that he is the creator and the Lord of of all? Before you decide what to give, is it 10%? Let's remind ourselves why we give. We're just returning to Him what's already His. And I gotta be honest, I, I think when Lisa and I started doing premarital counseling, we were shocked at how little a lot of younger couples were giving. We grew up in an age when, boy, at the time we were kids, you tied 10% of your allowance, you do this or that. We didn't even think it was a question. And we realized in this generation, that's, that's not necessarily the assumption. In fact, we'd ask them and they'd say, well, yeah, I I give, uh, my, my mom died of cancer, so I give to cancer research once a year, which is a good thing to give to, but it's not really what Malachi is talking about. Or one would say, well, yeah, I, I give to my alma mater. <laughs> I go, yeah, because you want your team to win the national championship, but is that the same thing that we're talking about here? Or my favorite, I heard this several times and it surprised me. Gary, I, yeah, I give, I just, I tithe my time. You you tithe your time. Yeah, I just decided I tithe my time and I'm just trying to think, what book in the Bible says we don't give money, we tithe our time? I read the whole Bible to find, I didn't, but I did find that book on Amazon. It's called this. This is the name of the book. Verses that aren't in the Bible, but we wish they were. That's the book that says you tithe your time instead of your money. Now, I hope we tithe our time. I hope we give generously of our time, but to say I'm gonna give time and not money is sort of like a parent saying, all right, kids, I can feed you or I can clothe you. Which one do you want? I'm not gonna do both. You have one or the other. You know, your kids, well, is it possible to do both? And I think in the Christian worldview, yeah, we can give our time, we should, but we can also generously give our money and let's look at the historical context before we answer the questions. Kurt pointed out, or the first week, somebody on um, that Malachi was a contemporary of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah had come, and it was an exciting time in history. He built the wall around Jerusalem. Things were getting going. Ezra, also a contemporary, was getting the temple worship going. It was an exciting time, and so Israel gave because they saw results. But Nehemiah was on loan to Jerusalem. He was beholden to the king in in Persia, so he had to go back. And when Nehemiah went back, the people stopped giving. When the people stopped giving, the Levites couldn't afford to just volunteer their time, and, and they had to go get jobs, and worship temple stopped. And see, here was a lie. They were giving to the exciting man of the hour. They were giving to a movement. Things were exciting. And we see people do that today. some of us wonder, how do these televangelists raise 10, 15, $50 million a year? Because people like to give to what's flashy. They like to give to the man or woman of the moment. But let me stress, the heart of Malachi is this. Please don't tithe because you think Kurt is a really good guy, even though he is. Don't tithe because you think this is a beautiful place and you like to come here once a week, even though it is. Our tithe is about a response to God, giving back to him what's already is, what, what's already his. It's not about, Christian giving isn't about the man or woman of the hour, it's about the God, of eternity. Malachi keeps making it personal. You're robbing me. It's not about Nehemiah anymore. It's not about Ezra. It's about me. And I think that's what's so important because why do I wanna give anywhere else? What's a better use of my money? I mean, there are things I'm passionate about. I'm a big college football fan, but you know, 30 minutes after the national championship game, articles appear on Sports Illustrated, who has the best recruiting class for next year? Everything is, is there a better investment of my money than people worshiping God and getting to know God? A Couple weeks ago, Lisa and I went and saw the movie Jesus Revolution, and, I, and we were skeptical, as I know many of you are. We've seen so many cheesy Christian movies. We loved it. We thought it was powerful. I was literally fighting back tears seeing addicts delivered, relationships healed, people coming to worship God. And I'm just saying, Lord, would you do it again? I can't imagine a better, Lord, would we see it again where lives are changed? Because I've seen that in churches. I remember asking two guys that that were in a running group with me, why are you a, a part of this church now? And they said, Gary, if we weren't a part of this church, we would be single and in jail. Today we're married with kids and we're not in jail. It's just been a better life. And we want to see that. What is the best investment of my money beyond this work? That's why we give. And that's far more important, I believe, than what we give. But I said I'd answer the question, so let's do that. Is the commandment to tithe still legally obligatory for Christians in the New Testament age? when we look at Jesus, he mentions the tithe a couple of times. Two of them are actually the same, Matthew and Luke, probably the same conversation. He's not talking to his followers. He's talking to the Pharisees. And he's sort of using the tithe against him. He says, yeah, well, you you tithe from mint, dill, and cumin, these smallest of little herbs, but you're ignoring the weightier matters of the law. This you should have done without neglecting what is even more Important. some would take that this you should have done as Jesus is reinstituting it, but he, he's not talking to his followers. He's sort of using the Pharisees' arguments against him. If you're gonna make it through the law, fine. You keep this little law. If anything, he's downplaying it, but you're missing the most important part of what God calls you to do. And then when you look in the epistles, there isn't a single occasion in the New Testament where they say we are now legally obligated to pay 10% to keep the tithe. And in church history, you've got different things, different opinions throughout church history. Now before you breathe, okay, I'm not robbing God, I don't have to worry about the 10%. Jesus asks different people to do much different things than the tithe. In fact, you could say with the rich young ruler, he asked for 100% tithe. He says a 10% is okay, he says, you know what? You wanna be perfect, that's your question. How about you give it all up? When Zacchaeus was confronted by Jesus, he gave a 50% tithe. See, the New Testament doesn't say, we don't have to worry about giving, it changes the motivation, which kind of obliterates the number. Jesus in the New Testament don't focus on the percentage. They focus on the heart. It's not about a percentage anymore. It's about the heart behind the giving. Paul talks about this to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 9, seven, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, figuring out the 10% to the smallest amount. For God loves a cheerful giver should be people whose heart is awakened, it's all his. He created me a human, he's given me his Holy Spirit. He's every good thing in my life is because of him. I wanna give as much as I can to honor him, to support his work. I I don't know about you, but I believe I owe Jesus so much. I believe his work is so glorious, infinitely more important than anything I could enjoy or anything I could leave behind. I I don't wanna give him just 10% of my heart. I don't wanna think I get to reserve 90% for me when I don't trust how I'll use it. And that's the change in the New Testament, not a legalistic 10%, but a passion for Jesus and his work. So if you're pushing me, I'd say I think tithe belongs with the Old Testament commandment of the Sabbath. They were both commands, give 10% and keep the Sabbath. And I think they're both a part of wise living. It's not how we get salvation. It doesn't mean that we're not in a right relationship with God if we're not doing that. But for healthy living, it's a good thing to keep a Sabbath. You're not gonna be damned if you don't, but it's a wise thing to do. And I think to challenge our hearts, I think 10% is probably a good number for most of us to start to think about. When I said in my prior church, I had a camp for high schoolers and then another camp for younger kids. And one mom was bemoaning to me, she sent her son to camp for the week long camp with five clean pair of underwear. And he came back with five clean pair of underwear and one very dirty pair, they said, let's just burn this, okay, I, I don't wanna touch it. Look, it's not a law that you change your underwear once a week when you're away at camp. You're not gonna go to hell if you don't change your underwear. It's a wise thing to do, it's a healthy thing to do. And I think for me, it's a good figure to realize it's probably a great place to start because of this. I don't trust my own heart. The Bible tells me it is deceitful. And I could see how if I'm not convicted by this, I'm gonna spend everything on myself, my own pleasures. If there's a little bit left over and nothing else I could imagine, I could imagine just sort of getting by, well, it's not a law I'm not going to worry about. And I can't think of a good reason for me to not at least start at that. But here's some things we can know. If it's not a legalistic rule, certainly we still don't want God to be viewing us as robbing him. And there are a couple things that I believe come from the New Testament. The first one is this, giving should be universal. Paul says on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put something aside. Each one of you. I can't categorically say everyone must give 10%. I can categorically say every Christian should give. Paul assumes that's what it is to be a follower. Second thing is that it should be strategic and systematic, not sporadic or spontaneous. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put something aside. On the first day, not after you spend all week on your own stuff, on the first day set something aside because if you do believe the work of God is that important, you wanna make it a priority. How many of you have ever been self-employed? Raise your hands if you are now or you have been. Okay, my wife and I were for much of our life before I started working with two churches here. Well, one church now and one before. And you know where I'm going if you're self-employed, it's the quarterly taxes, remember that? And when we got going into it, we realized You gotta set aside money every week for the quarterly tax. If you wait until quarterly taxes are due, just look at your paycheck and then think, okay, that's not taken out any week, but a quarterly, I have to come up with all of that together. We had to be systematic and strategic to pay the government their share, or I'd be in jail, not up here speaking. Well, am I gonna be that systematic and strategic to give to the government, but not to God? If I wanna prioritize it and give God what I think is just His due. I wanna give first to Him. And I think third, and this is just me, I can't give you a direct scripture. I think it should hurt a little. (laughs) If I really believe everything belongs to God, if I really believe he is Lord, if I really believe his kingdom matters more than mine, his reign matters more than my comfort or pleasures, at the end of the year, if I look at the number we gave and it doesn't hurt a little, I kind of think I am robbing him. I've been a fan of physical fitness my whole life and you've heard this phrase with physical fitness, no pain, no gain. Anybody in that has heard that? Here's spiritual fitness. No loss, no boss, no loss, no boss. If I really think God is my boss, that he is most important, that he reigns, and I'm not feeling a bit of loss, I'm not sure that I'm really making him my boss. That loss of my own money to him is recognizing he is Lord, his work, matters. And in giving, I place myself under him. It's a statement of surrender. God, it's all yours. And here's the thing. You might be hearing this as an obligation. We're going to get into this in a moment. When I place myself under him, I believe I am blessed abundantly in every way, in a way I could never bless myself. I believe it's the key to the most abundant life. So more than I should take comfort in the fact that the 10% obligation may have been obliterated in the New Testament, the real message is, so has the 10% ceiling? (laughs) What if Jesus is talking to me like he is the rich young ruler? What if I'm to have a response by Nicodemus? I'm not gonna be motivated so much by a number as by a motivation and a heart. The second question I said I would answer then, so is the church the storehouse? All of the ties have to go to the local church because it's a storehouse. I've heard a lot of pastors preach on this. They usually come to the same conclusion because it's very convenient if they say yes because they have budgets to meet. But let's look at the historical situation. The Old Testament temple was the center, the physical center of worship in Israel. It was one place where everybody would go to worship. The New Testament has obliterated that. There isn't a physical temple, there's a spiritual kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew 6:33, seek first the kingdom of God. It doesn't have a courthouse. It doesn't have a boundary. It doesn't need a wall. It's God's influence, God's reign. And so I believe giving to the storehouse is giving to the work of the Lord, wherever that might be. But here's the thing. Here's what's so interesting. When we look at where the New Testament does say we're supposed to give, we're supposed to give to gospel workers. You see that in Corinthians and 1 Timothy. We're supposed to give to missions, 2 Corinthians and Philippians. We're supposed to give to other Christians in financial need, Acts, Romans, and 1 Corinthians. When my wife and I give to Cherry Hills, we're giving to all three of these. We're certainly giving to gospel workers. We're giving to missions. Christians in financial needs. One of the things that impressed me most coming here in July, if you're new, I've just been on staff since July. Every Tuesday, seeing the amazing work of manna where people come in, they're not leaving money behind, but they're pushing carts of groceries. 1,500 people are served every week by the gifts that people give to this church to help those in financial need. Yeah, I mean, it's a great (laughs) ministry that you see. And so Lisa and I have found the most efficient way of giving is by giving to the local church. So let's look at the amazing promise behind all of this. If we go to verses 10 through 12, this is amazing what God says. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Here God is saying, literally, try me out. I'm putting my name on the line, test me in this. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops. The vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. God is literally saying, okay, I'm gonna test me out. Give a little, get a lot. It's literally what he's saying. He's asking you to give a portion and you're gonna get a lot. And he says, Gary God, prosperity gospel on me, hang on. Let me explain where he's going before you say that. One commentator described the word blessed as to magnify or extol another person's condition as a desirable one. What God is saying through Malachi is literally, if you will do this, just give a little portion, every nation will wish it was you. You'll be the envy of the world. They'll all say, oh, if only we could be like Israel. What's so astonishing? You go back historically, when they received this promise, Israel was this tiny little, rundown nation under Persian rule. They had to get permission to build a wall around the capital city, a capital city woefully underpopulated, underfinanced, in ruins, and yet God said, you're gonna have a way to test this out. If you will do this, you'll become the envy of the world. Now, this is a promise to an Old Testament nation. Basic Bible interpretation means we can't one-to-one take a promise to a nation and apply it to ourselves individually. I mean, Christians love to do that because it sells refrigerator magnets and and, and inspirational posters. And sometimes I don't think it's such a big deal because by by extension, it may not be an unfair promise, but we, we can't take this as an ironclad promise, but I will tell you this. In fact, I talked to somebody before this service They said, it made no sense, our finances were a wreck, we were in debt, we started to give 10% and we realized 90% goes so much further than 100%. And if you're in Financial Peace University, you've probably heard story after story after story where people have said that. I've seen it be true more times than I can count. But whether it's talking about earthly blessings, it is 100% an ironclad promise to individuals eternally. Because Jesus reinforces it in his own language. He said this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, this is Matthew 6, 19 through 21, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal where irresponsible bank managers make foolish investments and put the entire banking system at risk until the government bails everyone out. Little bit of commentary there. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And this is the whole issue we've been talking about. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. CS Lewis puts it so clearly when he says this, the only thing you can take with you when you get to heaven is what you have given away. The only thing you can take with you to heaven when you get to heaven is what you have given away. But I wanna bring us back to where this starts that it's personal with God, are you robbing me? More than I care about my finances here or even treasures in heaven, what is this state about my heart before God to whom I owe anything? And I've been wrestling with the last couple of weeks, is there literally any better use of my money than seeing God's work grow, than seeing his name exalted, than hearing him worshiped, than walking in surrender to him? And there's really a choice. Are you gonna clothe yourselves with God's grace or Gucci? Are you gonna put on the armor of God or Armani? Are you going to live in the victory of Christ or Valentino? Are you going to walk in Christian surrender or walk in Christian Dior shoes? In the end, what matters most? Because here's the thing, expensive suits, they're gonna wear out, one little moth can destroy them and one calendar year makes them unfashionable. $700 shoes are still gonna get dirty, the heels are still gonna break, but God's favor and grace is priceless and eternal. And so I look at it this way, giving up something as eternally insignificant as money to walk and surrender to God with the promised eternal blessings? It's the best trade of my life that no money manager, no government, no consumer culture can take away. So this is really where we started and where we end. Let me ask this question. Is money getting between you and God? Or is it leading you to God. In the end, that's what Malachi is asking us. Let's pray. Father, being reminded of all that we owe you, kind of wish we had another hour to just sit here and worship you. But I pray we could quiet our hearts before you and do an inventory. For some, it may not be money. Maybe they're grieving you and they haven't realized it, but your spirit has pointed out where. For those of us, we've just gotten a little sloppy, a little selfish, or some perhaps Lord, they've been giving and they haven't seen the immediate earthly return and they're wondering, is it worth it? Am I being crazy? Lord, I pray you'd call all of us back to this relational question. Will we use our money to get closer to you or is it a barrier between us? I pray, Lord, we would leave as people committed to draw near to you in Jesus' name.